Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Why do they keep letting us do this? It's too easy. I just, I mean, I know that I am sealing my fate by saying that out loud. But at this point, I don't care. I know that not everybody that listens to this podcast is in it for uh, our gambling segment or playoff chatter segment, but man alive, how many times do we need to come on this show and remind people that there is a Game 7 hangover in the NBA playoffs before people will remember it? I think indefinitely. And this one was even more beautiful. Actually, both times these playoffs... Warriors went seven games to beat the Kings. Celtics went seven games to beat the 76ers. Each time, that team came into their next series as the favorite. For the Celtics, the overwhelming favorite. For the Warriors, it was a medium-sized favorite. And, as if that wasn't good enough, each team came in off off their superstars scoring 50-plus points in the previous game. Steph had 50, Jason Tatum had 51, broke his damn record for Game 7 scoring. The Talking Heads gave ESPN a 90, or at ESPN, I should say, gave Boston a 97% chance of beating the Heat in this series. So much, so much value. Game 1 overs also hit. Both overs hit. Lakers Nuggets over, Heat Celtics over. Game 1 overs. In the playoffs, they're very much a thing. Not every time. So here's the thing. We're now getting spoiled because not every Game 7 situation is going to lead to a Game 1 ATS loss the next time around because sometimes you'll get a team coming in off a Game 7 that maybe was an underdog. It's a lot easier when it's a favorite and a large favorite like the Celtics where you're like, okay, well, this team, like, even if they throttle down the tiniest amount, they're not going to be able to cover that large number. And not only that, they just lost outright. We overcomplicate things sometimes. That's a situation where the Celtics, like, notably a team this year that had lapses in focus, coming into a series where they're the the massive favorites, the huge chalk favorites. You just knew there was going to be a point during that ball game where they didn't have full throttle gone, and it was the third quarter, and they got spanked in the third. And we didn't even need the Heat to win. We just needed them to cover. And the game went over with like six minutes to go, so that was an easy one. But now we pivot towards the next set of games. Today, we've already talked a little bit about the Lakers-Nuggets game two, but I will get into that later in the podcast. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Bespris, and today we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of the Yahoo pre-ranks because we've done most of it so far. We've done the vast majority of the heavy lifting. We've broken it down into chunks that more strongly resemble the pre-COVID Yahoo pre-ranks, meaning there's the early batch where Yahoo tends to get those Per game numbers, relatively accurate, relatively tight to the real result. Then there's the, really it's the old man chunk. I can call it the hit or miss. I can call it, we can come up with whatever name for it you actually think is the most fun. But at the end of the day, that 25 
This year it was, what did we decide the number was? It was like 26 or 27 to about 50. That's where you get the fallers, the old men. They're almost all in that chunk. It's the darndest thing. It happens every single time because you get the first rounders where everybody's just basically in agreement. You get the second rounders where it's like, oh, should they? Maybe? Could it? Yeah. And the guys at the end of the second round, beginning of the third round, those are the dudes that everybody's like, they're going to make the leap. And sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it partially happens. And then you get past that, and you get into this weird, that pocket, where it's almost a perfect blend. Not a 50-50 hybrid, I shouldn't call that a perfect blend, but it is certainly a, it's a suspension mixture of, it's more like a seven-layer dip, I guess. It's a sweet, delicious seven-layer dip of players that are being expected to take a huge jump forward and players that got displaced from what their ADP should have been because of those other players expected to take a big leap forward. This uh, Best examples of that this time around would be Cade Cunningham going at 26, Ja, Darius Garland, those guys going at 27, 28, or that neck of the woods. It was close to that. Zion was too far. Evan Mobley, there was an expectation he was going to go way up the board. And then you blend that in. Oh, Scotty Barnes also in there. You blend that in with the other side of this, of the guys that fell too far, that are really easy per-game wins, uh, like a Kawhi, who, again, like, look, you know, you're getting into the injury stuff there. So not so much on the head-to-head side. Jimmy Butler was drafted near 30 this year. This is a guy that's always, like, between 10 and 15 on a per-game side. Vooch, Chris Paul. I know that ignore the injury stuff for a minute because Chris Paul missed a bunch of games. He still beat his number on on a per game basis, despite having what I think we could all agree was a kind of an ugly year. And he still beat his ADP per game. Vooch, easy winner. I mean, these are just like all of these guys are just clean singles into right. Baseball metaphor time. And then you had Christoph Porzingis, who uh outperformed his health. And he became, you know, a double to the gap. Not a single anymore. As extra bases. Shea underdrafted because of the preseason injury. Jared Allen, Desmond Bain, all these per-game easy ones. You know, this is just, all you got to do is put the ball in play and you get something good out of it. Then you get into that next chunk, which isn't quite no man's land. And I forget what nickname we gave that kind of uh, 50 through... Where do we talk about it? I think it was like around pick 82. It's like 50 to 82. These are the guys that have playing time and some usage, but the question mark is what they do with it. So you can call that the, what are they going to do with it chunk? And you have to pick, it's a much lower percentage hit rate in there between you know the, the 27 to 50 or whatever that last chunk was I was talking about. The hit rate in there is is decent. The hit rate between 50 and 80 is lower. But if you can kind of draw the right names out of the hat there, the ones that are actually going to use their their positioning well, you have an opportunity for some larger gains, but you also have to dodge the larger misses. So, you know, some bigger gainers in there, uh, Jalen Brunson, Mikhail Bridges, were some big gainers, OG and Anobi. I'm looking again at this as the per-game side of the ledger. 
But he also had some guys that had usage that were pretty big misses. C.J. McCollum was a pretty big miss. Josh Giddy, Jonas Valanciunas, thank goodness we dodged him this year. Keldon Johnson, we didn't dodge him. Jordan Poole, Franz Wagner, Jabari Smith, the second. But then you had Larry Markin in there as well. Big gain, big gainer. And it's only when you get past that area, and that's what we're going to be looking at just for a few minutes today, because we're, we're in wrap-up mode on this pre-rank discussion. We've, we've covered most of the ground. I thought doing a little bit of a rehash there was probably useful, just in case you either missed one of the previous ones or you wanted to kind of let that data really sink in. Let it drip in between the crevices of your brain. That's a lovely thought. But this year, it was around pick 82 or so when you got past the guy with the area where everybody was going to have playing time and some usage. Everybody threw pick 82 with some very, very small exceptions. I mean, we're talking like one or two names before that point was not a guy. One or two names beyond, uh, before that point was not a player who fit all of those criteria. And I think we talked about this on the previous shows as kind of checking a couple of boxes. Top 25, these are the do they have, you know, first round per game upside kind of things. That's like one of the boxes you check and blah, blah, blah. Once you get into that 50 to 80 area, it's basically guys that check either one or two of the main boxes, which is will they have playing time? Will they have usage? And I guess the third box, if you wanted to say it is, will they use it right? Most of those guys in the 50 through 80 chunk checked the playing time box. Almost all of them. Like 97-ish percent. 95 to 100% of those guys checked the playing time box. But the number of guys in that chunk that could check the usage box was significantly lower than that sort of 25 to 50 range. Those guys pretty much all checked both boxes. And then the question for 25 to 50 was, what does it mean fantasy stat set-wise? This 50 to 80 group... The third box isn't so much what does it mean fantasy stat set-wise. It's what are they even going to do with it? I think that probably then does kind of wiggle its way to fantasy stat set. That becomes kind of part of the equation for that third box. But some of these guys don't even fully check the second box. Then once you get past, and this year again it was pick 82, but my guess is that most seasons it'll be around the 70 to 85 window if Yahoo's doing relatively well it'll be farther along so closer to 85 than 70 and if they're having not as great of a year then that that area no man's land that's where we've gotten to now is would be closer to 70 it'll have something to do with player movement certainly there wasn't a lot of that this last offseason so that made handicapping a little bit easier I thought because again we're in the business of simplifying things but then once you get past that pick 82 now the first box isn't necessarily getting checked, meaning are they even going to play a lot? Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes is no, but it's not a guaranteed, and that's the beginning of no man's land. Once you get to a spot where you can find a few players in a row, frankly, that don't check either of the first two boxes, now you're in no man's land. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Boo. 
say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. And here, I would argue that during the first chunk of this, Jeremy Grant, by the way, I think was the last player in the will definitely have playing time, will almost definitely have some usage, but what is he going to do with it group? And I haven't, I guess I haven't come up with a great name for that area yet. I think he was the last name in that. The first name in the next group, No Man's Land, first name was Jalen Smith, who coming into the year, we thought he was going to get playing time, but I guess we didn't really know for certain. So we did check that box. We were wrong to check that box. And then even when he got playing time, it was kind of questionable whether or not he did anything useful with it. Yusuf Nurkic, the next one. I don't think that we could guarantee there was going to be playing time, not just because of injury, but just his health has been on the decline and his ability to play starters minutes has been on the decline for like three years running now. Tobias Harris, I think we felt pretty confident he was going to get the minutes, but we didn't feel confident he was going to get the usage. Keegan Murray, I didn't know if he was going to get either. We thought maybe on the minutes, didn't think there was much usage to go around. Colin Sexton, I thought probably was going to get both minutes and usage, and then he blew out his hamstring and missed two months. So I would argue he was a player that maybe could have gone into the 50 to 80 grouping, where then the third checkbox is, does it even matter that he has playing time and usage? And the answer there is meh, because his stat set isn't all that great. And then Christian Wood, we knew he was coming off the bench, so right out of the shoot, you knew he wasn't necessarily guaranteed playing time. Paolo Boncaro, he was definitely a playing time and usage guy, but we had no idea what his stat set was going to be. You could argue maybe he could have been in that earlier group, but someone we would have dodged in that chunk. But I have no argument with him falling to this spot. Anthony Simons is the next name on the board. You knew he was going to get playing time. You didn't really know the usage. You probably thought it was going to be good. But again, it comes down to that third checkbox of does it matter? Now, I would argue that Gary Trent Jr. at 90 was someone that you could look at and say, I feel pretty confident he's going to get playing time and usage, and I feel pretty confident if he gets both, he's going to have some fantasy value. And sure enough, he beat his ADP. Now, some of that was because someone on Toronto was constantly hurt, and so he got a bump in playing time and usage whenever that happened. But regardless, he's a guy where... And and, then that doesn't mean that necessarily he should have, say, quote, been going earlier. Yeah, obviously, we know that now after the fact. I think the conclusion here is actually just to say, how do you isolate the better picks in no man's land? You find guys that you feel check all three boxes. Is this no man's land player going to A, see a bunch of playing time, B, have usage during that playing time? You know, Shane Battier would be a perfect example of somebody who played, who could play 48 minutes in a ball game and do nothing with it. Better reality than fantasy. And C, 
the third checkbox, does the fantasy stat set bear out that if he checks boxes A and B, it matters? Sadiq Bey was probably going to get playing time and usage, but his fantasy stat set stunk. There you go. But he healed. I think he was a guy that checked all three boxes. That's why we drafted him in a few spots. He ended up beating his mark by more than expected. P.J. Washington. Um, I don't know that we knew he was going to get any of the three. Playing time, usage, or stat set. And he kind of got like, he got the playing time, he got some usage, but the stat set wasn't all that great, so he sort of leveled off to like a fine no-man's land pick, not really a win or a loss. Kevin Porter Jr., we knew he was going to get A and B. C was the question mark there. That was the reason you'd either go for it or go against it. Gordon Hayward. Um, well, he's a unique case because <laughs> dude can't stay upright for more than 35 games in a year. Trey Jones in San Antonio. You knew he was going to get usage, but we didn't really know if he was going to get significant playing time or do anything with it. He ended up fine. He basically hit his ADP. Andrew Wiggins, you could probably argue that you knew he was going to get playing time and usage, but again, you didn't really know what the stat set was going to lead itself to. But at pick 99, you could probably make a decent argument he was going to be fine with it. You can go on like this. I've done, what, like 15 names here? This is, in my estimation, not only how you isolate where no man's land begins, but also isolate what you should be doing once your draft gets to no man's land. And... Again, a shout-out to Chris Kootley for sending us the Yahoo pre-ranks as of October the 17th. It goes on like this. Then you get to Kyle Lowry, who there was really no guarantee he was going to get any of the three things on that board because, like, dude is just so old that it didn't matter. Time Lord was going to miss the first half of the season. You can skip over him. Harrison Barnes, you knew he was going to get playing time. You didn't really know he was going to get usage. Mitchell Robinson, there you go. There's one that you can find and say, okay, he's going to play. We knew he was going to play because they gave him a nice contract. B, he doesn't need usage. Good. That one's an N-A, not applicable. And C, if he's out there, he will produce. Boom. There, you got a winner in no man's land. Brandon Clark, I thought he was going to be better this year, but uh, coming out of the preseason, we kind of got a little bit of a wink-wink, nod-nod that he wasn't going to get the playing time. Jaron Jackson Jr. came into the season hurt, so again, we can't really analyze that one in this particular respect. That's a different discussion, meaning... What do you do? Uh, well, generally, we avoid it. I know, and, and you guys are going to be like, ah, but JJJ, he was the... Yes, he was an anomalous example of someone that worked out w extremely well uh, starting the year hurt because he came back like a month and a half earlier than anybody expected. That, that joint never happens. Clint Capella at 104. The minutes weren't really guaranteed, but we knew the starting job was sort of doing fine. Uh, doesn't need usage. And then if he gets the minutes, he was going to be successful. So Capella, after 100, you're looking at like, okay, this is probably a kind of fine. Not much in the way of massive upside. The upside was there if the minutes stayed higher and didn't get carved into by Onyeka Okongwu, which they ultimately did. But even despite that, Capella ended up uh, doing fine. You know, he played 72 ball games, which was useful. And he ended up with actually a top 50 fantasy season. So there you go. He got enough minutes. 27 was enough for him. He didn't get into that 30 range that pushes him into the top 24 discussion per game, but we didn't need that when he was going at 104. Kyle Kuzma checks A and B, but definitely didn't check box C. Monte Morris checks A, but not B or C. RJ Barrett checks A, maybe B, but definitely not C. Cam Johnson. 
He was in Phoenix, remember, to start the year. And if he doesn't blow out his meniscus, this is a much easier season to handicap. But he was going to play. He was going to shoot. And we knew he had a good stat set. Boom. There you go. Checked all three boxes. Let her rip. Bobby Portis. We didn't know he was going to play or not. He was a relatively, like, kind of semi-safe play in that range. But there was almost no upside there unless Brooke Lopez got hurt. Who, by the way, Brooke Lopez way down the board here. We haven't gotten to him, but... Playing time, yes. Usage, doesn't really need it. Stat set, yes. But then, you know, the upside built in on Brolo was that he actually got usage this year. Did not expect him to take close to 12 shots per ball game. So he scored 16 points. That was way more than any of us expected. But we didn't need it for a guy getting drafted at, what was the final number there on Brook Lopez? Uh, 132 you know, he's a top 90 play with no usage at all. He was top 25 this year with usage. That's why you're looking at these types of players. That's what you're hunting for. And they become less prevalent. I don't know if that's the right word for it here. There's big jumps in between players. Like, think of it this way. Malcolm Brogdon, playing time, not guaranteed. Usage, not guaranteed. Stat set, not really guaranteed. I know everybody was, like, kind of high on Brogdon. I was not that high on Brogdon, and he finished at 120, like, right around his ADP because stat set is fine for him, but he needed big-time touches to get there. That's why I wasn't as high on Brogdon as some others. Jaden McDaniels. Uh, we had no idea if he was going to get usage when he was out on the floor. That's why I didn't draft a ton of Jaden McDaniels. He was fine this year. I think he was right on his ADP. The ADP was like 111, and he finished at 111. It's hard to do. Good job, Yahoo. But again, that's why he wasn't one of the guys that I immediately targeted in No Man's Land. You heard the names that we've that we've pulled out so far. Gary Trent Jr., Buddy Heald. Uh, sort of Kevin Porter Jr. You guys heard me kind of soften my stance on him a little bit. I'm sure that surprised a lot of you. Mitchell Robinson was on that list. Uh, Capella, these are not necessarily old man squad guys, but this is how you look at that board and you say, okay, well, who's worth a shot? And then you get deeper into the old man, or the uh, no man's land spot here. And we're not all the way there. I don't necessarily feel like we need to go through every name and tell you why we did or did not like them. Uh, because at some point, you're going to run out of players that check all three of those boxes. And then the next thing on the board is you're basically just hunting stat set. Once you run out of the A, B, and C guys, you're basically just looking for someone who has a strong C box to check, meaning has fantasy stat set, and then you hope that either A or B somehow hits for them. And those would be guys like Isaiah Jackson, who didn't, Alkangu, who did, Kelly Oubre, who you figured would probably... Maybe he's less a stat set than he is a usage guy. He's like an, a big shimmering B box. Oh, he's going to get the usage, but will he be out there? You don't know for sure, but when you run out of things that hit all three, you look for kind of like the best combination of the remaining names. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you go back to a guy like Harrison Barnes and say, oh, well, we've run out of guys that check all three boxes. Well, at least we know Harrison Barnes is going to play. No, now this is, by the way, and you'll have to do this typically after about the 10th round, sometimes even earlier, now you're really getting into the math, and there isn't a super easy way to simplify those decisions. Whereas for basically everything we've talked about so far, 
I'm trying to find a way to simplify that decision-making for you guys. How do we simplify the old man squad zone, the 25 through 50? Okay, great. How do we simplify the 50 through 80 chunk? Terrific. How do we simplify this sort of 80 through 100 and, I don't know, 20? But it's not even necessarily 80 through 120 on the pre-rank board. It's now kind of like 80 through 120 in actual draft names in your league. Once you get through that 10th round, you're picking through the dregs and you're trying to find the best combination of the three boxes we've been talking about. And it's it's sparse, and you're going to disagree with the other people in your draft on these, and that's why names come flying off the board from all kinds of weird angles. Because now you're getting into the, okay, how many names am I skipping over to get to the next guy that I'm looking at, and what order do I even look at them in? You know, do I go all the way down the board for Isaiah Hartenstein at pick 144, ADP 144, or do I... Grab, I don't know, uh, DeAnthony Melton at 120. What order do we do these things in? That, my fine-feathered friends, we can't really figure out by looking at Yahoo's pre-ranks. That's just the reality of this situation. Yahoo's pre-ranks don't tell us anything about what order we should be grabbing those guys after about pick 110, honestly. It doesn't even really go all the way to 120. Kind of need to make these moves earlier. In that zone... Maybe you call that the true no-man's land. Maybe what I've been calling no-man's land isn't really that. Perhaps we should come up with one final nomenclature switch for this discussion before we put a bow on it and talk a little bit more about the playoffs. And I think we should. I've decided here in the moment that we should. New nomenclature! After pre-rank 80 on the Yahoo board or, well, 82 this year. It's Yahoo No Man's Land. But for actual draft night, that No Man's Land doesn't really start for a little bit longer. And the reason why is that if you're in even a mildly competitive league, other teams in your league are going to start treating the draft board similar to how you are. Meaning that the players that you had isolated on Yahoo's pre-rank after pick 82 that you're kind of hunting down, they're probably going to get clustered towards the front of no man's land just because of how good the opponents are in your league. So in this case, uh, and, and Brooke Lopez is a bad example because people were generally fading him. He was one of those ones where we kind of went the, the good way on it, but we were relatively solo. Uh, Isaiah Jackson is a guy that a lot of us were high on. Sports Ethos was definitely not the only site that was high on Isaiah Jackson because it seemed like, oh, well, Miles Turner's back on the trade block. Surely they've got to play the young center. Everybody wanted to take a shot on it because he had that incredible stat set. So yeah, his pre-rank was 116, but he was going off the board pretty early in no man's land, even if the ADP doesn't, didn't necessarily reflect that. So... In reality terms, in your fantasy draft, picks 80 through 100 to 110 are kind of like the cream of the no-man's-land crop. Those are the, we can still check a couple of boxes, guys. But they're not going in the order that Yahoo has them as on, on the pre-rank table. It's no longer a draft board where people are going off of that 
general order in a way that in the earlier parts, people do kind of generally follow the order of the names on the board. That just doesn't happen once you hit No Man's Land. So 80 through 100, 105, 110, that's the cream of No Man's Land. And then after that, then it's true No Man's Land. Because then you're really picking through guys where there's no, there's almost no guarantee of any success. These are guys that you might not have on your roster in three days. It might just be a total miss. But if you can find the few sparkling gems in those last, the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, whatever round of your draft, probably 10 through 15, if it goes that deep, 10 through 13, whatever, find the sparkling gem. Figure out if it's based on playing time. Maybe you're higher on someone's playing time than the consensus, or you're higher on a fantasy stat set than the consensus, or you think someone's going to have more usage than consensus. That area is where I feel we have to use our own information, our own math, our own handicapping the most. Because that's where you're going to disagree. That's where you zag when everyone's zigging. In a way that earlier on, like we talked about, if you simplify it, it doesn't really feel like you're zagging. It just feels like you feel like someone checked the boxes. But in this zone, nobody's checking any boxes. You can go your own way. Said, I believe, Fleetwood Mac. Am I getting that right? think so. All right. That, everybody, is the end of our Yahoo pre-rank discussion. It was a uh, three-episode series along with the one where we kind of introduced it and uh, what it all means. Now let's talk basketball. Heaven forbid we talk a little bit of basketball here towards the tail end of the show. By the way, I want to remind everybody that we continue to recruit here at Sports Ethos. We actually now have a page set up for recruitment. You can actually just fill out a little form over on the Sports Ethos website. I'll try to get that link in the show description so you don't have to sign up for Twitter. You don't have to uh, email in. It's even easier than that. It's just like a five or six question form, and uh, then you throw a little, I think there's a little writing sample in there at the end, something like that. Um, So that's over on the sportsethos.com website. I will, again, get the link to you all. Uh, did I remember, did I mention you guys can find me on Twitter at Dan Vespers? If not, whatever, you guys know how this works so far. All right, tonight, Nuggets, five and a half point favorites. That's down from six and a half off the opening number. Total up from 225 and a half to 226 and a half. Money is trickling in on the over. Uh, Lakers are not surprisingly getting a little more money here in game two. And that is why that number has come down. I think this is going to be a good ball game, and I talked about it in game one, how the Lakers, I don't know that there's anything the Nuggets can really do to stop the Lakers at any point during this series, just because the Nuggets don't have much in the way of interior defense. What they're going to have to do, and by the way, I don't mean to undersell Jokic as a rim protector, but he's not a rim protector. He gets steals, he'll slap the ball away from down low, he has really good hands, but someone like Anthony Davis can just go over him in a way that AD could not with Jaron Jackson Jr., or even really Draymond Green, who, you know, quicker feet, position defense, strong. Like, Jokic is taller than Draymond by many leagues, but he doesn't have the lateral quickness. He doesn't have the sort of defensive IQ. He's just going to be a big guy near the rim. But on the other side of this, I'm really not sure that there's anything the Lakers can do to fully stop the Nuggets either. It feels a lot like the Bubble Series where the two teams just traded haymakers every game. 
The games got slower as the teams got more and more wiped out from playing each other, but nobody ever really stopped the other team in those bubble games. It's I, it's weird to think about uh, how... When the hell were those? Those were in, like, July or August or something, right? Were those games in August? I don't remember. When the hell did they play that? Was it in September? I can't remember for the life of me. That was the 2019-2020 season. Good Lord. Feels like a bazillion years ago. Uh, When did it start back up? It started back up... Man, I really don't remember. Maybe it's good that I don't remember. <laughs> Oh, anyway, point is, and um, you can take all of this with kind of a grain of salt because it was a while back, but the Lakers-Nuggets series, Lakers won the first game 126 to 114. That was just like the classic, nobody cared about defense. Lakers won game two, 105 to 103. Nuggets won game three, 114, 106. Lakers won game four, 114, 108. I think that was the game where AD hit that that big late jumper. Wasn't that right? And then the Lakers closed it out in game 5, 117-107. So again, like and I know this game those games weren't in front of fans and blah blah blah, but only one of those games finished with a total under 220. I know what you're saying, Dan. Didn't you just tell us that today's total was 226 and a half? Yes. The series is not going to be played in the 250s every single ballgame. At some point, it's going to come back down to earth a little bit. But, like, again, did anyone really stop anybody else in those ballgames? Not really. The teams pretty consistently scored between 50 and 60 points in almost every quarter throughout the ballgame. LeBron scored a ton. AD scored a ton. On the Nuggets side, Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, and Jeremy Grant had a terrific series. I will say that as I look at this one from kind of a tactical standpoint, uh, the Nuggets having Michael Porter Jr. out there is a big gain. I think they'd rather have Jeremy Grant than Aaron Gordon for this series. I don't know if that's necessarily the case in every series they play, but for this one, one where they could then have all five players as like legit floor-spacing offensive options, maybe not Jokic so much, uh, I know he hit some crazy three-pointers, but that's not really where he wants to be. But, like, if they were able to run out a lineup around Jokic of Murray, KCP, Porter Jr., and Grant, the Lakers would have no way to get AD back in the paint. He'd have to take Jokic one-on-one if he wanted to play in the paint, and they really don't want him doing that. Right now, they'll have Anthony Davis guard whoever the worst three-point shooter is on the other side and then just sag off of them. So, yes, that probably gives the Lakers a little bit of an edge in terms of how they can defend the paint better this time than three years ago. Last time they threw Dwight Howard at Jokic, remember? They said just beat him up a little bit. But then the Nuggets went into a Jamal murray Nikola Jokic pick and roll, and Jamal Murray attacked Dwight Howard relentlessly. This time around, if the Lakers guard Jokic with Rui Hachimura, the Lakers would have someone who's a little bit quicker. I know Jamal would still probably cook him, um... But the, the, the Nuggets might just go to that anyway. Difference here is, if they go to that, and if it's Jokic, you know, backing in on whoever had Murray, whether that's like, you know, Schroeder or Austin Reeves or D'Lo, Anthony Davis is going to sag back into the paint. He's going to be the help defender every single time on all of those. 
I don't know that the Nuggets, and I think I said this two days ago on the pod, I don't know that the Nuggets have the personnel to pull Anthony Davis out to the perimeter the way that the Warriors did. They'll try, because that's the way to beat the Lakers. That's the way to get good shots against them. But I don't know that they can do it. Where I think the Nuggets have a big edge is in a close ball game late. That's a spot where I thought the Lakers had the edge over Memphis. I thought the Lakers and Warriors were somewhat evenly matched in that regard, getting a good shot late in the ball game in a half court, just because the Warriors have Steph, and the Lakers have AD and Braun and these guys around him that can get a decent shot. They can go towards the rim late in the ball game. I'm not sure anybody in the NBA can get a better look late in a game than Nikola Jokic. You guys can disagree with me on that, but if this game is tied with two minutes to go, I think the Nuggets win it. So I think this series for the Lakers has to be a little bit, and they probably don't feel this way internally. I'm sure they feel that if it's a tight ball game late, that's anybody's game, LeBron's going to feel like he can win it even if his shot isn't falling. They should probably go to Anthony Davis in those spots, but whatever. I personally believe that the Nuggets will win most of the close games in this series. So the Lakers are going to have to find a way to be up by like six or seven coming down the stretch. That's how they pick up wins, which again, doable if they continue to get the better looks on offense, sort of long, you know, uh, ultra large sample size thing. You figure that if the Lakers get better looks the way they did kind of the final 25 to 30 minutes in the first game, if they do that for an entire ball game, they probably slowly pull away by a few buckets and that's how they win down the stretch. But again, Tie game, two minutes to go, one minute to go, whatever. Nikola Jokic is the guy I would want, I would trust the most of anyone on either of these two teams right now. He's the guy that I would trust the most to go make a shot down the stretch. Because even if Anthony Davis does come over as a help defender, we've seen Jokic hit a bazillion 12, 13, 15 footers, whatever, leaning back awkwardly. He just makes them. And his field goal percent is insane. Maybe both clubs hit their shots down the stretch, but again, if you give me 25, 30 tries in that spot, Jokic is the most dangerous, I believe, of anybody on either one of these teams. And so, to that end, that's why I believe the Nuggets have as good a chance of anybody in the NBA of beating the Lakers, because I don't know that other teams really have that. You could say Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, yeah, but I don't know that those guys are necessarily going to be getting better looks at the very end of a ball game than LeBron or AD in a way that, in my opinion, I think Jokic can get a better look just because simply he's bigger. He's bigger, and his touch is amazing. I think this is a tight ball game. I think the Nuggets pull out a very tight ball game. I think you'll see a lower scoring game here because you'll see the Lakers force the Nuggets into tougher shots like basically like they did in Game 1. But in Game 1, the Nuggets hit all of them. Frankly, they were just too comfortable for 20 minutes that once the Lakers put them in tougher spots, they hit those anyway. And on the Lakers' side, they hit a lot of their corner threes. They probably won't be as good from three-point land here in Game 2. Anthony Davis was amazing. He probably just misses a couple of those not-super-tough shots, but he shot a little bit above himself on them as well. And you probably see this number come down. So slight lean to the under, lean to the Lakers, uh, but I... I I think there's a, I think there's like a 60-40 chance the Nuggets go up two games to none on some late heroics. This is going to be the one that hurts, I think, if the Lakers lose it. The way the, way the Lakers win this ballgame 
is by building up a small lead coming down to the wire. And so maybe that lends itself to if you like sort of same game or correlated parlays, however you guys want to throw that terminology out there. If you think the Lakers win this ball game outright, like if you think this is a close ball game, you probably go Lakers. What I probably wouldn't do is assume the Nuggets are going to win by a bunch. So Lakers plus the points feels like a pretty good spot to be in. Lakers money line if you think they actually win the ball game outright. But again, if you think it's close, I don't know that they do. If it's a close game, you're going to see it slow down a lot late, which I think that's where I'd lean. So I kind of like Lakers plus the points and the under. But again, talking about this series three years ago, not that many games, none, one out of the series stayed under 220, which uh, doesn't give you a whole lot of wiggle room here. Should be fun, though. 5.30 Pacific time. That's the start time on that one out in Denver. You can bet your butt I'll be watching as much of that as humanly possible because, damn it, these playoffs are amazing. And the Heat up one game to none on the Celtics, who will almost definitely bounce back in Game 2, but we'll talk more about that on tomorrow's show. Thanks, as always, for hanging out, everybody. We'll see you over at the Ethos. Come join us here. Recruit thyself. Auto-recruitment. Baseball, basketball, football, hockey, you name it. We want, as Dan points at his monitor, you. Toodaloo for now. (laughs) 